Amen. Well, guys, grab a Bible. Join us tonight. We are in the Gospel of Luke. We're making our way on Wednesday nights through the Bible about a chapter at a time. Tonight, we're going to do Luke chapter 13. So hopefully you got your Bible and you're making your way there, whether it's, again, physical, electronic, one way or another. Join us so that you're a part of this. We just speak to you guys who are online as well. Again, so glad to have you with us. But we invite you to be fully there. Grab a Bible. Make it so that you're connecting, you're opening up the Scriptures with us. And in this space, God would speak to you through His Word. We long for that. We need that this evening. And so with that as an aim, let's do what we often do. Just take a moment and just kind of quiet our hearts and just ask that God would break through whatever's needed in your life and mine to give us the ability to hear from Him. Would you join me? Father, we thank You that You are a God who is at work today. Lord, that You are faithful got to think about just right now at this moment, getting a chance to go through a chapter of of your word together. And yet, Lord, would you open up our understanding? Would you help us to see what you're saying? And then, Lord, would you do that which is just so much more real in that sense, so much more needed? Would you take it and just affect our lives right in the place where you want it to be changed? Would you Give us the ability to hear that, just to hear what you're saying to us tonight so that we'll know it, that we could leave this place going, I know what God was talking to me about. God, you're faithful, you're able to do that. I just want to admit I'm not. That's not in my power. That's not in my strength. Well, the only way that we're going to get this, the only way that we'll hear from you is by your faithfulness. So God, believing that, asking for it, and trusting you now, we ask for your work in this moment. We do so together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 13. As we find ourselves here this evening, in many ways, this chapter deals with something that we'd often talk about as something like your worldview. You might even know exactly what I mean when I say that, but there's a way in which you view the world. That is, events unfold as you see things happening around the world. There, there's a perspective with which you gauge that. In many ways, that's kind of where we are this evening. Jesus had just finished spending a a section of time talking to us about eternity, about us having a heart for eternity, which is where we were last week, having this perspective on on that kind of just Maranatha, the Lord come, and, and believing in that. And yet now he kind of brings us to this place that much in this chapter, both through parable and accounts, again, it's going to challenge us. To, to say how we're seeing the world. And maybe as we do so this evening, it'll only just encourage you in the things that are there. Or maybe there might be some things that you need to change the way that you're viewing things. So with that as an aim, and that is what we're going to look at, let's just begin. The first section is found there in the first five verses. Would you just notice it with me? It says in verse 1, it says, There were present at that season... Some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will, by all, you will all likewise perish. They're there. They're going through some things, and they bring Jesus this question. They bring him a question about things that are happening, and they're the kind of things that sometimes would fall under that category of acts of God. You know what I mean by that, that kind of insurance policy thing where it's like, okay, these things are abnormal, or these things are, are, are huge things. And there were a couple of them. One really was an act of terrorism in many ways. Pilate really had enacted much that was taking place. There was a space where he'd actually sent his soldiers dressed as as kind of just normal people in the midst of the crowd, and in the midst of kind of one of their protests, he had slaughtered many of them. And it caused this whole thing that was his way of saying, hey, you know, don't defy me, kind of a Roman governor in the midst of that. And so they bring this to Jesus and kind of talk to him about it. Jesus answers that, but he includes in his answer Not just this act of terrorism, if we want to put it this way, but even a natural disaster. We have a Tower of Siloam that had fallen. We don't know what made it fall, if it was an earthquake or if it was wind or or what it was, but some reason they're in the city. And so here's their question. 
Their question is one that maybe you have had as well, that in one sense, like, so why did that happen? I mean, why is this happening? Is, is this somehow like God's judgment on them that somehow, you know, they deserved this thing to happen? You know, what's happening in the midst of this? And so Jesus answers it very clearly. He says, do you suppose, in verse 2, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? He says, I tell you no. <laughs> that's not the way this is working. I'm telling you no, that's not what's happening. Instead, he just challenges them. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus gives us both of these things where he challenges the way that we really view this. Now again, this might be right, you know, something that you're already just got it figured out, but maybe not. See, we live in this space where sometimes when these things happen, that people want to think, okay, is God doing something? Is this judgment? You know, is, is the reason that New York is getting all this snow, is something happening in there that God is doing in the midst of that? And Jesus would tell us no. I mean, just to say it in the most simple way, if that's the way you view the life, that means that everybody else that isn't getting snow like that is in God's favor. And that's certainly not true. There's, there's a sense of a very rebellious world. And Jesus just challenges us to say, that's not the way you should be viewing it. That's not the way this is. Now, don't get me wrong. God is God, and He is working in the midst of the world. And I'm not in any way saying He doesn't judge or work in some of those things, but He's telling us that's not the way we need to view it. That there's a way that when we're looking at our world, He says, here's the thing. Unless they repent, everybody's going to perish. Everybody in the world Everybody in the world is a sinner who, whether they die in a, in a train accident or they die of old age, they're going to die and face judgment. And that's the really big deal. Everything else is kind of, you know, not really the big deal. I mean, it says, unless you repent, everybody dies. Everybody dies. Everybody's going to perish, and they're going to pay for that. And so he's challenging us in a way of, of saying, hey, when we view what's happening in the world, a very broken world, but an unfair world in many ways that works through this, we shouldn't be like, well, you know, that's kind of why it happened. You know, that's why that's happening there. And again, some of you would know that's sometimes where some people will spend a great amount of time. And Jesus just challenges us. He says, that's not the deal at all. I want you to view the world and recognize it's a broken world that everybody's dying. Everybody's going to pay for their sin. And so when you look at it, you should see it is entirely that way. It's not like anybody's, you know, deserving of health or favor and nor, you know, somebody maybe deserving more judgment because they're all dying. And so he challenges us to kind of make sure that when we're viewing what's happening around the world, that we see it from a very simple way. I mean, in a very clear way. It's, this is about eternity. This is about souls. This is about where they are. With that, he adds to it this. As he finishes that story, he gives us a parable in verses 6 through 9. It says, He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that you can cut it down. It's a parable of a barren tree, and you kind of get it. You know, here's this guy who's got this tree, and it's not bearing any fruit, and he comes to the guy who's caring for it. And it's like, why are we still doing this? You know, why are we still putting up with this? Cut it down. I mean, it's, just, it's not doing good. He says, let's give it just a little bit more time. Let's give it one more year and then it will come. The real simple part of this story is just that we have a very limited time. I mean, the, the parable obviously flows a little bit off of what he just talked about it. Like, the whole world's broken. Everybody's dying. And it's as if God is looking for good. There is none. It's like, okay, there's just a very, you know, we're going to give it one more moment. We're going to give it one more space, and then we're going to cut this thing down. And that's true. The judgment that's coming on our world, the, the end times, and everything that's in the midst of that but in many ways, it would flavor the way that we view it. That in one sense, as you and I are looking at the world and looking at everything that's happening in our world, there is a sense that we're kind of recognizing the need that everybody's a sinner needing to repent, and yet we have a very limited time. I don't know how much time we have left, but it is limited. There's, there's a very you know, place where God is saying, okay, I'm going to give it a little bit more space, give it one more moment for this to come through, and then when that doesn't come, then the judgment will come. And that view should change the way you view things. It should change the way you see things in the world. Well, as he gives us that, he then takes us into the next journey. As we're walking through this, he picks it up in verse 10. 
says, now as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Okay, we'll pause there for a moment. We get to to watch this incredible thing that Jesus does. And I I almost just wish you could feel it. I almost wish you could kind of place yourself there. I mean, there he is. He's teaching. It's a Sabbath. It's a gathering of God's people in the midst of the things or people seeking God. And there's this woman who's been, you know, kind of had this bent over, hunched in one sense, this infirmity for 18 years. She was bent over, could no way raise her up. We're known more in a moment. There's actually a satanic cause to this. He's going to tell us that Satan had done this in her life. And without spending a ton of time on that, it's one of those balances for us to make sure that we think through. Not every sickness is satanic, but not, there's, so we shouldn't be that, we're going to fall into that category that we see everything that way. But there is satanic things. Satan really is involved to it, and some of it are. And that's where she is. She's actually in this place. And so Jesus sees her, and he calls her. I mean, just kind of trying to imagine this. I mean, they're kind of in a gathering. If you want to picture it like a Sunday morning kind of thing, and it's all done, and he just, he sees her and says, you know, you know he calls her. He calls her to, hey, come on over here. And so she begins making her way to him, and, and he just tells her, verse 12, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, which is a beautiful thing. And immediately she was made straight. I mean, just immediately up, and she is so excited. She's glorifying God. It's just a beautiful moment where Jesus has just done this amazing thing, where he's touched a life, where he's restored, where, you know, 18 years have just vanished away, and you could only imagine what must be happening within this woman's life. I mean, just the joy that she's feeling. It's like she is absolutely glorifying God. It's this great moment. Jesus has touched. He's blessed. He's rescued. But that leads us to the next part of the story, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. So you get this man, this religious leader, and he's angry. And it's important to kind of understand just the position he had. I mean, this is a synagogue. It's a gathering of people who are seeking God within the Jewish culture, kind of somewhat like church today, if you want to think about it this way. But this guy isn't just present. He's the man in charge. He's the ruler. He's the, the one that has the most esteem or the most power in the midst of all that. And, and he looks on this and he's angry. Now, he's not angry because the woman's healed. I mean, as far as we can tell. Who knows if that's, you know, if she's, he's not just frustrated with Jesus for that, but that's not the reason he gives. The reason he gives is because the way that she's healed, she happens to be healed on a Sabbath. The Bible had, had given in the Old Testament that God had called his people to rest on the Sabbath, specifically the Jews, in, in honor of that. They'd taken it very seriously, but it created a very strong legalistic tendency out of it. And so in his mind, this was a violation of the Sabbath. Let's just be clear. It was not. It is not a violation of the Sabbath, but he is. And so he's frustrated with Jesus. He's actually angry. He's actually angry and probably in his own mind thinks he's right. I mean, he's in this place of saying, you know, you shouldn't do this. I mean, there's six days you can do this. Why do this today? This is not the right way to do this. And so Jesus answers in verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite, does not each one of you On the Sabbath, loose his own ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him." I mean, Jesus just absolutely exposes this guy's hypocrisy. He says, you would, you would take care of your animals on the Sabbath. You feed your animals, you water them, and, and you don't think God should do, bless somebody on the Sabbath? You don't think this woman who has been in this cursed position that Satan had bound, and again, Jesus just almost with dramatically, and he just says it. He says, think of it, 18 years. He says, she was loose. This is a good thing. 
It was a, it's a right thing for happening, and Jesus seeks to expose in so many ways what's happening here. Well, that then becomes partly what we need to think through. I mean, in one sense, at least for our challenge here in chapter 13 tonight, is to challenge the way we view life. And so we're watching everything that's happening here, and I would put to you that in one sense, Jesus is exposing something that was present then, but is present today as well. That religious hypocrisy, it's a very real problem. A place where in the name of God, sometimes people kind of, it's all, it can be an external thing. It all can be for going through the motions. And in so doing, it can, it can be things that resist the very things that God is doing. So let me just play this from two different angles. There's a piece of me that wants to make sure that I'm not on the side of the hypocrite. You know, there's a piece of me that looks at this and thinks, you know, sometimes I could be that way. You know, kind of wanting God to do things my way and my timing, and it's like, this is not the right way to do it. I mean, I don't know if you ever feel like God does things in the wrong way. You know, I do at times, and so sometimes I can recognize, hey, it's like, you know what, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be someone that in any sense, you know, finds himself resisting what God is doing, and so there's definitely a sense of that. But on the other side of it, there's also just a recognition that this is things that we're going to have to deal with, that there is something in this life that part of seeking to live out for God and, and walk in a world that's fallen is that you're going to come face to face with this. If you haven't already, I would be surprised, but you will. Places where that in one sense is you're trying to serve God and just live for Him, you're going to come against people who, you know, in the name of God, in the name of things, will, will stand strongly against both who you are and maybe how you do it in a way that's both demeaning and, and ridiculing. And somehow just watching Jesus deal with this is both helpful and just a reality like, okay, that's part of this world. That's part of what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with the world that in one sense, you know, has all these things that are happening, and yet we're looking at a sinful world, a limited space, and yet in the midst of it, one of the realities that we have to face is this. There's a bunch I could say on that, but I'll just leave it except to say it's not my favorite part of it. I mean, when I think about the broken world that you and I live in, I'm sad by the brokenness, I'm sad by the things in there, but sometimes some of the most hard things to deal with are the religious weirdnesses that happen in in our world then in one sense, I just wish it wasn't that way. I wish it was all black and white. I wish it was all like, hey, this is good and this is bad. But there is this, this in-between at times where it's like, okay, you're in the name of God, you're, you're doing things that are entirely outside of God's character. And yet somehow just knowing that Jesus is showing us this gives us a perspective of that, that that's a reality that we indeed have to deal with. In fact, it's right there that Jesus adds to it a couple of parables that will press it in a little bit harder. Pick it up there in verse 18. It says, Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of mill till it was all leavened. Okay, two parables, same reality, or talking about the same thing, that these two parables are about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God, we would probably, you know, use a different term. We might call it Christianity, and yet the kingdom of God isn't just the things that call itself Christianity, it's what God is doing, His reign in the world. It's what we pray for, right? We're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, which is a, a statement both of God saving people and drawing people to Him, but it's God's work. And so when we think about the kingdom of God at this moment, again, the perspective of this is we're thinking about God's work in our world. We're thinking about what God is doing, and so now we're not just talking about kind of false things. We're not just talking about kind of the hypocrisy of people that say they are Christians and are not, now in some senses we're talking about the very kingdom of God, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, the, the things that are happening into this, and he gives us again two parables. The first one is a mustard seed. He said, you know, you look out at this, he says, what shall I like in the kingdom of God? What can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which if you know the story, is the smallest of all seeds, he said. But you take it and you put it in his garden and it grows. 
And this mustard seed becomes a large tree, he says. I mean, it's just, it's kind of this massive growth that seeks to happen. Doesn't always happen with mustard seeds, but he's kind of using it as a picture of that. He says, so what happens when this seed kind of explodes? When, when real things begin to happen, when, when this little thing begins to grow bigger, he says, here's what happens. He says, the birds of the air nest in its branches. That the birds become a part of that. Now, in all of the parables, there's something that we sometimes talk about as parabolic consistency, that Jesus doesn't make things weird. In the parables that he uses, it's a picture of Satan. It's a picture of like when you think about the parable of the sower, the, you know, Satan's like the bird of the air that comes in to snatch the seed away. And so here he's telling us that you know, in this place of growth that Satan will nest in its branches. Hey, more on that in a second. Let's keep going. Verse 20, what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and it hid in three measures till the, the meal of it was all leavened. So he's got this big, you know, thing of dough. You put a little bit of leaven in it. If you've ever kind of baked, you know, just kind of mixing that in, the leaven permeates the whole thing, permeates the, the entire deal. Now, leaven always is a picture of sin. It's a type of sin and kind of that permeating effect. Now, I probably ought to pause here and say, you might have heard this differently or maybe even have thought about it differently. Sometimes people have tried to use these parables as a positive thing to say, hey, you know, the church is going to get big, and we're going to permeate the world, and these are, you know, kind of positive things. But again, that would take it both out of the context that we're in, and we kind of mess up the imagery that's found all the way through it. And so instead, he's letting us know some, some really hard things, that in one sense, when we think about God's kingdom, that these things are, are a part of what, what takes place in the midst of it. Now, again, I just want to say this as careful as I can, but as clear as I can. This is not one of the most beautiful truths found in our world. This isn't one of those things that you're going to go, oh, I'm so glad it's this way. At the same moment, it's incredibly life-giving to have Jesus explain it to you so that there's no surprise in the midst of it. So what did he just tell us? Wherever there is a move of God that explodes, wherever there is where there's big growth that's happening, where this little seed all of a sudden begins growing, Satan's going to weasel his way in. He always does. He always does. That, that, that will become a target for his. It shouldn't surprise us. If, if a church is growing, if, if a movement is happening, it should just be like expectation, like, okay, Satan's going to get involved. There's going to be something in the midst of this that Satan's going to seek to find his way into the, the tree itself, find his way into the quarters of whatever's happening so that he can seek to be a hindrance. Not a surprise, but it is a part of it. But that's not the only problem. Because Satan's not the only one that messes it up, we mess it up. Uh, that we are, even though God has worked into our lives, we are sinners. And, and so leaven is this one of these things that it, whenever there's a work of God happening, it can so easily get permeated by sin, and it just shouldn't be a surprise. Now again, I'm not sure how to even try to say this as clear as I need to say it, but again, for some of you, you're going to be like, I wish I had known this years ago. I mean, I wish I had known this before I actually came exposed to it. If you're not aware of it, then I hope to give it to you in a way that protects you. Because I'm telling you it shouldn't be a surprise. If there's something happening, if there's a work of God happening, again, maybe a, a church or even a Christian band or, or whatever it is, it shouldn't be surprising if God begins working that you should almost expect it. It's like, okay, Satan's going to show up because he always shows up. I mean, it just shouldn't surprise me. And it also shouldn't surprise you that sometimes Christians have a, have a tendency to kind of put our own touch onto things and it actually begins to mess it up without spending a ton of time on this. Here's the way it works. Maybe you're aware of it. Maybe you're aware of just the, the world in which we live in and sometimes you might have looked out there and thought, you know, I wonder why there are so many Christian churches. Why there are so many denominations? It's not an easy answer, but one of them is this. Because often what happens is a denomination or a church will start, things will go really, really well, Satan will begin weaseling his way in, people in their own sin will begin messing it up, and it just begins to kind of, you know, get problematic, and so God does a new thing, and now there's a new church, and now there's a new denomination, and there's this new work, and, and history has been marked by this. Again, it's not the most beautiful of truths, but it's an honest one. And again, if anybody's like, okay, that's, that's exactly what this is. I mean, that's how, I mean, it's not a surprise to us that sometimes it is that way. If you're not, if this doesn't help you, then you're going to get hurt. Because what happens is somebody will be watching something again. Maybe it'll be a church. Maybe it'll be a ministry. 
or maybe I'll be again. I don't know why I'm using. Maybe it'll be like you know some you know Christian you know worship band that's doing some amazing things. You're like, this is amazing, and then all of a sudden you'll find out. You're like, man, they're like. There's some weird stuff in the midst of that. Sometimes satanic stuff gets in there. Satan tries to mess things up. And then all of a sudden you find out people are sinners. And their selfishness and their pride and their jealousy and their envy kind of come out. And you're like, I, I didn't expect that. I kind of thought this was going to get better and better and better. I thought the church was, was this thing that is beautiful. But we're not beautiful. Jesus is. And there's a reality of kind of just understanding that Jesus is just telling us Hey, that's how the kingdom of God, that, that's the struggle that we're having in the world in which we have. Now, the kingdom of God's going to win. Jesus pulls us out in the end, and he's going to rescue. But in the same moment, it gives us a perspective of this life that should be, again, helpful. Again, my challenge is to you is it should be the worldview you have so that when it happens, you're not like, devastated. I just can't believe, I can't believe that that ministry went bad or somebody, you know, messed it up or, or, or you know, Satan kind of got in there and, you know, all of a sudden there's some, I, I, you should have been like, I was expecting it. I was expecting, I mean, because you know what, if God's working, Satan's going to resist. And you know what, given enough time, you know, people will always permeate the, the, the things that they touch with sin. I mean, that's who we are. Sin, it's like leaven. And, and so, yeah, you start a new work and there's a new ministry happening or a new church happening and and it's like, okay, that's going to happen. It kind of works. It's in there. And there's a reality to that that becomes, again, incredibly helpful that we could look there. And so I would say it this way, that in some way, you know, sin and Satan, they, it just, they mess up the church. It messes up the kingdom of God, but that shouldn't surprise us. It, it, it's never a sense that in one sense it's, you know, stopping the kingdom of God moving or that God wins in the end, but we just know that that's part of the journey in the midst of it, that he's telling us, okay, yeah, there's religious hypocrites, and that's real, but even in the church, even within the kingdom of God, you know, there's these birds and this leaven, I mean, it just permeates these things. It ought to be one of those things that doesn't move you. Instead, it should draw you to be like, God, you're amazing. Again, I just want to give it to you very quickly, and again, if that's you this evening that you have no idea what I'm talking about, please understand. I hope you don't get to know too much. But some of you are like, man, I know what this looks like, and so what do you do with that? You, you turn your eyes off of people, and you put them back on the Lord, and it's like, man, Lord, you are using the weak and foolish things of the world. You use people in spite of them. I mean, the things that he does, he uses the church, and, and he's not using perfect people or perfect institutions. He's doing something, and you get to see this thing that that, you know, your, your eyes are on him for me. I can just tell you, you know, over this last, you know, 26 years of being a church, there's been several instances where I just was blasted with this, where some ministry that I trusted in or believed in went weird, you know, or something happened, and, and, and you find yourself thinking, okay, what do you do with that? Well, again, for me, it turned my eyes back to God. It's like, you know what, God, it's not a surprise to you, but you are, you're, you're the faithful one. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, you're working, you're, you started a good work, you're going to complete this whole thing, and the more that you become almost a student of church history, you become less impressed with people and more impressed with God. You become less, less like, oh, aren't these people amazing? Like, man, God, you, put, you, you use the weirdest of people. You know, you use the, the craziest of things. You take us in spite of ourselves, and the church is not a testimony to human greatness, but God's faithfulness. And in one sense, again, that just becomes helpful to see. And Jesus warns us about it. it. says, hey, that should be what you were expecting. That's the worldview in which you have that it's not a surprise that this is the world that we're dealing with. Well, with that, he adds to us this in verse 22. As they kind of lay this whole thing out and it says, you know, he went from there, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one of them said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? Again, it's an interesting question. So we've walked through this whole weird thing. We've walked through religious hypocrisy. We've now talked about the hard things of the church that's in there. And so they just ask him, Jesus, so how many people are really saved? I mean, is there, I mean, I mean, is there just a few people in our world that are really true Christians? And, and, and is that really, you know, the way that this is working and just almost that reality of the broken space that we're living in and the things that are happening? And so Jesus answers them. He says it to them this. He said to them in verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and 
you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets, but he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. So the answer that Jesus gives is there really is a narrow gate. There is a there is you know, this road, that this narrow road, this place of, of who really is a follower of Jesus, that it really isn't a, you know, a, a broad road where people are making it in. When Jesus would talk about it in Matthew 7, he'd say the same thing. He says there's a broad road where people think they're on the road to heaven, and they're not. There's a narrow, hey, there's one way, there's one gate, there's one door, there's one way in, and it's Jesus. Jesus would say, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets into the Father any other way. Every other person that thinks they're making it to heaven by any other means than Jesus is going to be sorely and sadly mistaken. And yet it's such a scary thing what Jesus is saying, and I don't know how you even process this, but I'm just going to be as clear as I can. This is some of the scariest realities to me on planet Earth what Jesus says right here. When he looks at this whole thing and he gives us, there's this dreadful picture, there's this dreadful reality where he says, here's what's going to happen. You know, the master's going to be judging that the house, he's risen up to shut the door. And then there's going to be this people, you know, like standing outside, kind of almost like the gates of heaven, if you will. And they knock saying, Lord, Lord, <laughs> Jesus, you know, like they know Jesus's name. They're like, hey, we want to get in. You know, how do we make it into heaven? And he's going to answer and say, but I don't know you. I, 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 we don't have a relationship. And they're going to begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and we taught, you taught in our streets. Or we would say it this way, like, we went to Calvary Chapel. I mean, like, we were there. I mean, when, when, when Pastor Phil was leading the songs, I was there, you know. I mean, we, we were, like, around, you know. We were, you know, kind of there. And he's going to say, but I tell you, I do not know you. You, where you're from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. One of the scariest realities is people who think that they're saved and aren't, who have this expectation that they're going to make it to heaven. And Jesus gives it to us that way. He says, hey, there's going to be this people. In fact, when he talks about it in Matthew, he tells us there's a bunch. He says, there's a, many are going to say in that day, Lord, Lord, <laughs> Lord, Lord, here we are. And he's going to say, but I don't know you. I mean, you never actually got saved. You never actually had a relationship with me. And, and so Jesus just tells us, hey, strive to enter that gate. Now, again, I'm not trying to create any unusual fear. I actually recognize that can happen just by sharing this reality. If it doesn't scare you, I'm not doing a good job by it, with it, by the way. I mean, if you're not like, what if that's me? I mean, like, what if that's me? I mean, if that doesn't terrify, I mean, I know some of the most godly people I know, and we still have this question. You know, it's like, okay, that's a scary thought. That's a, like, that's one of the scariest things that I could ever have happen. But the, the thing is, make sure you have a relationship with him. Don't be satisfied just going to church. Don't be satisfied just by being kind of around the things of God. Know Jesus. You need to know him. You need to have a serious, you have to have a real relationship with him personally. It's not enough that your spouse is saved or your friends are saved or, or again, that you go to church. It's not enough. It, you have to have a relationship with him. And if you have a relationship with him, then, then, then stay on that narrow road. Like that's, that's, I'm pursuing that. So again, I'm not trying to create unusual fear at the same moment. It's a very real fear. Now I've shared this a bunch of times, so allow me just to share it very quickly. What terrifies me is both that that would, you know, I don't want that to be me, but I don't want it to be you. What terrifies me as a pastor is I don't want anybody in this church being one of those that thought that they were going to make it to heaven because you came to church. Like I came, I came and Pastor Jim told me I was fine. Pastor Jim, I mean, he, he, he treated me like a believer and I, I just want to tell you, I, I don't know if God will answer my request, but it's a very common and serious one. I ask him often, God, I know this is going to happen. I know that there's going to be a bunch of people who think they're saved and they're not, but please, nobody under my watch. Nobody. 
I would rather you get mad at me. I'd rather you leave. I'd rather you be like, well, Jim, I just, I feel like you're hard. I'd rather, I'd rather that than anybody feel that just somehow, you know, because you are around, it was enough. And so I'm pleading with you, if that's you, if you don't have a relationship with him, if, 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 you, if Jesus would say to you, I don't know you, we, we, we don't have a relationship, you and I, we, you don't know me and, and, and you don't have, you're not saved through me, you don't have that testimony of a believer where you know, this relationship is a personal relationship, if that's not you, then by God's grace, I'm pleading with you today. Hey, that's what you need. I mean, there's only one way out of this broken world. There's only one way into heaven, and it's Jesus. And it's not just like a password. It's not like, well, you know, Lord, Lord, I know who you are. It's not like you can get in the gate just by saying Jesus. It's a relationship where Jesus says, I need to, you know, he tells those who are left outside, I don't know you. I don't know you. We don't have that. So I'm pleading with you for that, and yet it's such a scary reality. In fact, when he explains it more, he says it this way in verse 28. He says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. He says, there's going to be this group of people who they don't make it in. They don't get into heaven and they're going to be, ang- they're going to be weeping and broken and crushed and so sad in this moment. He says they're going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they're going to sit in the kingdom of God. There's going to be believers coming from all over the world that have this true relationship. And indeed, those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. And kind of is this, this picture of, of both speaking both to the Jews, but also just in this world. Like there's going to be those who, who seemed like they had nothing in this world, but they have Jesus in their end. And then they're going to be people that had everything, and they lose everything. And this moment's going to change everything. And so there is this serious moment of just thinking, okay, <laughs> that's the way I need to see this. And again, if that's you this evening that doesn't have that, that confidence, then I'm calling you to this relationship with Jesus. But if you have it, then I'm calling you to have that view that we're looking on this. We're looking at this whole place that, that we should say, okay, you know, kind of just putting it simple and I kind of had to you know, be on the narrow road, know Jesus, make sure that that's who you are, that's what you're seeing, and in the midst of it, that's kind of how you see our world. So again, we're challenging your worldview. Like you should look out at the world and go, like everybody's a sinner. And if they don't repent, they're going to die. And I don't know how much long more time we have left. It's just a little bit. But in this world, there's religious hypocrisy. There's sin and Satan to mess up the church. But there's a narrow way out of this, and it's Jesus. And it's the only way out. It's how you need to see it. It's how you need to see the world. It's how all of this is working and calling us to have that view that would be like, that's the way that challenges everything that I see. As he gives us to this, kind of, a little bit alongside it, but still helpful. Verse 31 says, on that very day. So there he is. He's just shared this really heavy moment. He said, some Pharisees came and said to him, saying to him, get out, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. Okay. So Pharisees, again, these are the guys who are, who are enemies of Jesus. They're resisting him. And they just come to him and talk to him about Herod. Herod is a ruler there in Jerusalem. Pilate's actually there as well. Herod's kind of holding kind of a, a, a lower kind of rule within Jerusalem and lots of weird political intrigue, lots of real political power. But Herod's really got it out for Jesus. In fact, Jesus doesn't even see Herod till the day that he you know, goes before the trial. And if you know the story later in Luke, Herod finally gets to meet him and he's like so excited and Jesus absolutely ignores him. <laughs> Doesn't tell him anything, which is interesting all by itself. But in one sense, here you have this moment where the Pharisees are telling him, hey, you know, the government's against you. The government's out to get you. Herod wants you. He, he, wants, he wants to end you. you know, he's seeking you. You should run. <laughs> you should be terrified. You should be afraid. And Jesus' answer is fascinating. He said to them, Go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. It's a pretty bold like statement. It's this bold, almost like, hey, just go tell him that fox, which is, you know, kind of a, a, a sense of both his, you know, kind of trickery, trickeriness and just, hey, you just go tell him, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm going to do this today. I'm going to do it tomorrow. The third day I'm going to be perfected and begins to foreshadow into the, the, the cross and the resurrection. But it is a sense of saying, you know, this is unstoppable. I mean, you know, you just go tell them that, you know, yeah, I'm going forward and, and you know, we're going to do all this and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, die and I'm going to rise again and there's absolutely nothing he can do to stop it. Nevertheless, in the midst of it, he says, nevertheless, I must journey today. 
and tomorrow for and the day following, for I cannot cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. That in many ways he's looking at it says, you know, we're gonna we are gonna have to journey, but I'm not moving because I'm afraid, but because we're making our way to Jerusalem. That's where I'm gonna die. We're heading towards the cross and and heading in the midst of that, and there's a little bit of just understanding this idea that Jesus in the midst of this is walking wisely. So again, as we're kind of thinking this through as a worldview perspective, there is a sense of thinking about oppression and thinking about everything that's there, and there's just a perspective that Jesus gives, which is absolutely fascinating. I wish I could develop it in a better way, but you know, they, they wanted Jesus to be terrified. He's like, you know what? I'm not terrified. Go tell that fox. Like, you know, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again, and we win. You know, it doesn't mean that he's walking foolishly. He's going to walk wisely in the midst of it. But there's a way of, of just seeing this that recognizes the emptiness of that. I find myself thinking, I often will pray, when I, when I kind of find myself thinking of this reality, I'm often found myself in Psalm 2, and God would just look out at the world and says, you know, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? Why would they set themselves against the Lord and His anointed? It's, it's not going to go well for them. There is a sense of just recognizing just that Jesus wins, that there is a sense that there is a confidence of that. There's a way that should be that. And I hope you have that confidence. I hope you can look out at our world today and maybe you're worried. Maybe you find yourself kind of feeling the oppressive nature of some of the things in our world. But I'm hoping that you could have almost Jesus like, you know what? Go tell that fox. Like, you can't win. Yeah, we're going. The cross wins. The resurrection wins. You know, there's no way to stop this thing that, that's moving forward. And there's just this beautiful confidence that Jesus kind of has in the midst of it that looks out at the world that's there, but isn't afraid by it. Just absolutely confident that God's kingdom is moving forward. Well, that draws us to one more vignette in this chapter here. And in verse 34, he gives it to us this way. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when, when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is helping us. I and mean, again, he's helping us kind of look at this and he just gives us this perspective. He says, you know, how often? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, looking out at them, looking out at the, the Jews, but there's definitely an application of looking even to the way that he views the world, the way that God views the world. And he says, how often, how often I just wanted to gather you. How often I wanted to gather you together, children together as a hen gathers the brood under her wings. How often I wanted to do this. And you almost just have to feel what Jesus is saying that he's looking out at this world that's broken. He's looking at the world that John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world. He says, I just, how, I just want to bring you in. <laughs> how often? I just wanted to, to gather you and bring you under my protection, bring you into to my family. How often I looked out at this and have this heart for the world and heart for the people. But he simply responds to it and says, yet you weren't willing. You wouldn't respond to that. You, know, you, weren't, you wouldn't respond to my desire to, to bring you in. And then he talks about their judgment. See, your house is left to you desolate. And it is a destruction that, that would be coming very practically and, and specifically upon the Jews and upon Jerusalem, but on the world. He says, this is not going to go well for you. This is going to be judgment upon your life. This is going to be judgment upon the, all that's there. And he says, that's going to be there until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A quote out of Psalm 118, a recognition of Jesus being the Savior. He says, that's going to be that way until you recognize me. That's the only way out of this. That's the only perspective in this. Now, as he gives us to this, it's probably pretty clear, but maybe just helpful to think it through for a moment. I mean, in one sense, what he's simply telling us is he's giving us a perspective. Hey, these things are absolutely true, but he's giving us a perspective that we should make sure that we view our world this way and the way he views it. How is that? Well, I'll say it this way, kind of as an overarching thing. Jesus loves damned people. He looks out at the world and he loves them. He, he looks out at a world that's living in rebellion and he loves them. But don't get that wrong. That doesn't mean that they're okay. It's like you're going you're, you're gonna to face judgment. You, that's going to go bad unless you would recognize that I'm the only hope. And there's this beautiful balance. Here's the deal. For someone in this room and maybe some watching online, sometimes we can fall one way or the other on this. Either 
we kind of look out at the broken world and we get so frustrated with it and so frustrated with people, we almost begin to get convinced that God doesn't love them. He's just, he's just mad at the world. I'm mad at the world and he's mad at the world too. Like he hates them all. Like he hates all these people. That's how he is. And you know, he only loves his people, but he doesn't love the world. Some people find themselves there and Jesus is like, that's not me. I'm looking out at this broken world thinking, I wish I could, could, could gather you all in. And so if you're on that category of, of not recognizing that Jesus loves the world, then you're wrong. But then there are others that go to the other side and think, well, Jesus loves the world, so everything's going to be fine. Like everybody's going to be saved and, and he wouldn't send anybody to hell. No, he absolutely would. You know, and he absolutely will. And he weeps over them, over their judgment. But he says, there's no hope for you unless you recognize me. There's no hope for you unless you can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and blessed is the Savior who would be that rescue. Like, that's the only hope. And there's this beautiful perspective of understanding both just the justice of that, the righteousness of that, but again, God's love for them, God's love for the world, and, and that needing to permeate our hearts. So let's think about this all together. So we've thought through some things this evening. We've walked through a chapter that I'm challenging you, telling you in many ways it should just be the way you view the world, that you have a lens by which you read through what's happening in the news, by what you have hearing around the world. You have a perspective that when you look at it, you say, okay, I see it. I, I see what's happening. I see what's in the midst of this. And I'm telling you, Jesus is helping shape that. He, he, he told us again, as we're thinking about just things that are happening, whether they be, you know, disasters or, or deaths. It's a part of the whole. Like, everybody's dying. Everybody's dying. Yeah, some die in some horrific ways, but you know what? Everybody dies because sin is destroying every life. And I look out at a world of desperately people needing to, to repent and recognizing we don't have a lot of time left. There's a limited space for this. Now, is is just broken and as hard as that is, part of the problem is the hope can sometimes be masked. Because for starters, we have religious, just religious hypocrisy, people who are acting like they're right with God and they're totally miss, missing the heart of God. We have in the midst of real kingdom of God stuff, Satan and, and sin that permeate. And so that kind of messes up the message. But the reality is there's only one way out of this. It's a narrow road. It's believing in Jesus, and that should change the way you view the world, that you should be able to look out at that and, and know that. If in any way it begins to move you where you begin to find yourself because of maybe the religious hypocrisy or some of the weird things that happen, maybe your disappointment in a ministry or your disappointment in a church, if you ever come to this place where you're like, well, I just think, you know, God's probably going to be more gracious than that. Maybe like people, lots of people make it in then you miss the message. That's not true. It is a sad reality. The hypocrisy is real and the brokenness that happens even in kingdom of God stuff. But the message is, it's only Jesus. It's only knowing him. Nobody gets to heaven any other way. Nobody else gets there. And so there's a desperate need for us to make sure that we are in that category. But it's also the way we view things. It'll change the way you live your life. It'll change what you do and, and where you are that you'd look and say, okay, there's a narrow road. There's a narrow road. And, and that place of taking us to the kingdom of God is absolutely desperately needed. And yet nothing can stop it. No, no oppression, no, no resistance from the world. Nothing can stop it. God is doing a good work. And in all of that, to see just the heart of God towards it, both towards those who are getting saved, but even the lost, so that it would permeate the way that you see the world, that you would see it the way that Jesus is. And so I'm telling you again, it should change the way we see the world. So as we close, I just want to ask this. Maybe you're here this evening and you're like, you know, <laughs> I got all those. I mean, yeah, I need to grow in them, but I'm doing pretty well. Good, then praise God. But maybe you could be honest and say, you know what? Some of that I understand. Some of it I struggle with. I'm not sure I see the world that way. I'm not sure I understand it clearly that way. You know, there's something honest in just telling God, I need growth in that. I need, I need to see this the way you see it. I need to make sure that the lens by which I'm looking at the world is the lens which you're showing me, because this is true. And so maybe just in this quiet mode, as we kind of move into a song, as I lead us in prayer, just longing that you would be able to say, okay, God, what is it I'm needing to do? What is it that, that needs to change the way I see the world? So let's go before God. Let's ask him that, and may he help you to see it as he sees it. 
Jesus, thank you so much for your words. And I just say afresh, God, I know that you've given us the truth, that Jesus, you've spoken to us the truth. God, as we've talked about worldviews and the way that we see the world, I pray that you'd help us to see it biblically. That we wouldn't be moved and shaken by all the weird things that happen in our world that sometimes shake people so badly. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for telling us exactly what it is and, and where it's going and what this looks like. God, there are some here this evening that they could look through this list and recognize there's need to grow in maybe many areas, but feel fairly much like, okay, yeah, that's, these are the, this is the way I see the world, that your truth has already kind of given them a perspective to see life the way, this way. Thank you, Lord, for that. Strengthen that. And yet, Lord, I just ask you right now, Lord, you know us, you know us personally, and just I pray for each one of us, if there's one of these areas that we just, we're not there, like we read it, but we don't see it, struggling to just embrace that this, that what you are saying is absolutely true, would you open up our understanding, would you cause it so that the way that we see the world would be affected by your truth, knowing that that would be both rescuing, helpful, guiding, God, take that and permeate us both tonight, but in days to come, so that we would not be surprised, also be encouraged, and be passionately pursuing just your work. God, as I close this, I bring that section back to you, which is some of the most terrifying words found in Scripture for me. That place of people who are going to stand almost as it were at the gates of heaven, expecting to get in, expecting because they know your name, because they can say, Lord, Lord, that they're going to get in. Expecting because they had been in the vicinity of people that know God, that they were going to make it in. And God, there's many you say that aren't, that you're going to tell them you never knew them. God, let that not be us. Let that not be us. Lord, if there's anybody in that category now, would you just awaken their soul that they don't have a relationship with you? That they think that just because they're in a building or around people that know you, that it's enough and it's not rescue. And then, Lord, I very just clearly bring my request before you that I have often prayed to you. God, let it not be anyone here. Let it not be any, anyone under my responsibility who finds himself in that category who thinks they're saved and they're not. Awaken us, Lord. Let it be where it's not a surprise to us that we know we have to know Jesus. God, I pray for that. I pray for rescue from that. I pray for help in that. And I just thank you, Jesus, because you are the way. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. In this broken, fallen world, you are rescuing people. You love this world, but you are rescuing people through you. And I just thank you for that and ask more for that. Lord, we just take all that this is and trust it into your care and pray for your good work in us and your enlightening in our eyes so that we see things the way you would have us to see them. In Jesus' name, amen.